We'll turn with me, if you would, this morning to the book of Psalms. As we journey through this first section of the book of Psalms, we're at chapter 5. So we'll be looking at that chapter this morning, Psalm chapter 5. As you turn there, I want to state to you that God listens to his people. Francis Schaeffer years ago wrote a book that says, is titled, The God Who Is There. And I have to ask the question, is it comforting just to know that God is there? We ask sometimes, don't we, does God care? Is he involved with me? Will he intervene in my life? Life brings messes, and then what? The psalmist by faith, David, according to the title, uh, writes these words to encourage us that God will listen to his people. Hear now the words of Psalm 5. The title, which is not original to the text, but which is very ancient, says to the choir master for the flutes, a psalm of David. And here are the words, inspired by the Holy Spirit. Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my groaning. Give attention to the sound of my cry, my King and my God. For to you do I pray. O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. But I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. I will bow down toward your holy temple in the fear of you. Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before me. For there is no truth in their mouth. Their inmost self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. Make them bear their guilt, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels. Because of the abundance of their transgressions, cast them out for they have rebelled against you. But let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy and spread your protection over them, that those who love your name may exalt in you. For you bless the righteous, O Lord. You cover him with favor as with a shield. So we consider this beautiful place in God's word. Let us bow briefly in prayer. Lord, grant us understanding. Give us ears to hear and hearts to understand your word. Lord, let us dwell on it, meditate upon it, and apply it to our hearts by the power of your spirit at work within us. Encourage us, Lord, this day. May my words be consistent with yours or else never be heard from again, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. David speaks in this psalm about the righteous and the wicked. It's interesting to note that he does not speak about the Israelite and the foreigner, but it does become clear that it's about the believer and the unbeliever. You see, God deals differently with these two groups. In fact, we are told very clearly, if you trust in the Lord, you will see great benefits. Maybe not all the things that you want in this life, 
but great and wonderful benefits that will last, some of them for all of eternity. If you are in a time where you're wondering if God is listening, if you are wondering if God will intervene in your life, if you are wondering if God will protect you, provide for you, or welcome you, this psalm is for you. If you are a believer you can be confident that God is committed to give you his presence and his protection. Now you might note on your outline in the bulletins, it's a five-point sermon this morning. That means I get to talk twice as long, of course. Just kidding. But there are divisions that alternates between speaking to the people of God and speaking to the wicked. He first says in verses 1 through 3, the psalmist does, that the the God who we serve, the God who he understands and believes, is the God who hears his people. Secondly, he will say the God that he hears and serves is the God who hates the wicked, and this God welcomes his people, judges the wicked, but protects his people. Now again, as you can understand with such a five-point sermon, there are a lot of things I can say. We can't possibly cover everything you can glean out of this text. But here, listen to this. God hears his people. David writes, Give ear to my words, consider my groaning, give attention to my cry for help. This is a plea to hear. In fact, he uses these imperatives to God, saying, Do this, Lord, on my behalf. And it's interesting, the expressions that he uses. First of all, he says, Hear or give ear to my words. In other words, he's saying, Lord, I want you to hear what I have to say to you. David isn't saying here, I want you to hear because I know better than you do. Sometimes we pray that way. He isn't saying here, Lord, you have to hear me because I'm worthy before you. We'll find out why David thinks God will hear his prayer. But he simply asked God to listen. You know, I think sometimes in life, that's all we want. We just want somebody to listen to us. And God will. Then he says the other thing that's kind of interesting. Consider my groaning. Charles Spurgeon writes on this passage, words are not the essence, but the garments of prayer. I have to say, my wife, I think, has heard me sighing a lot lately. There have just been some things going on that are on my mind, and sometimes I don't verbalize them, and she picks up on it, and she says, what are you thinking about? And when I sigh before God, he knows what I'm sighing about. He knows the words before they can form on my lips, and he knows the things that I cannot articulate to him. God will consider even my groanings and my sighs and those times when I'm too weak in spirit to verbalize what I'm thinking or what I'm going through. God can consider our groaning. And then, of course, also pay attention or give attention. Pay close attention, he says in verse 2, to the sound of my cry. If this were to be in the context of the last couple of chapters, it could have been during the time, we don't know for sure, but it could have been during the time David was running from Absalom. And, of course, during those times and many times in the life of David, he was crying for help. 
And he's asking God, simply pay attention. Pay attention to my cry for help. And it's interesting here, David doesn't even say, hey, I want you to respond in this way and this way and this way and then I'll be satisfied. He just wants God to know his situation, to know what he's going through, and to pay attention closely in his time of need. And why does he do this? Why is he convinced that God will do this? It's because of this pretext to his prayer. Notice what he says in the second phrase of verse 2. My king and my God. He knows that God will listen to him because he is David's God and David's king. You see, he's not just some God out there. He's not just some ethereal being out there who may or may not have any interest in me or who may do good things or bad things or whatever it may be. He's not one of a pantheon of gods. He is the only God of the universe. But for David, in his faith and relationship with God, as with us, when he tells God, listen, he already knows that God has a relationship with him. He's mine. That doesn't mean that David has ownership over him. It means that he has a relationship with this God. And notice, David, remember, he is the king of Israel. And he cries out to God, my king. So it's in essence an awareness of the sovereignty of this God who is his. He knows here that God is sovereign over him, even though he's the king. And, of course, in those days, we know the king, uh, there, there wasn't, you know, legislative and judicial branches of the government and all this kind of stuff. There were things in place for judgment. There were things in place for worship and all those things. But basically, the king's word was law in the land. And yet, in his humility and submission to God, he calls him my king. And then, verse 3, O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. It's interesting, the word sacrifice uh, isn't necessarily uh, what, what is here. It's basically saying I, I lay out before you. It's like laying out the wood for a sacrifice. And he says here, you do hear. There's a confident and orderly expectation here. In other words, there is a confidence that when he does pray, and here he uses morning, it doesn't mean he doesn't listen at lunchtime or at supper time, but, but a reminder that in the morning refreshing of the day, the first breath that he takes, you will, God, hear my voice. In his confident and orderly expectation, his desire is to come in an attitude of worship. I lay before you an order like a sacrifice, and I eagerly anticipate or watch what is going on here. In other words, I know you're listening. I have to tell you, if you haven't noticed, my gas tank is on empty. This has been a difficult few weeks. You know, after the norm of my uh, life over the last several years as a pastor, we often take a vacation early in the summer. You know, it, it's around our General Assembly time in June and so forth, and, and so we take a vacation, we come back, sometimes we take as much as two weeks. 
And so normally by this time, we've had a vacation in June, we've had some other things going on, we might have some easier uh, times from week to week, but it seems like there's been one thing after another. And I realized sitting down why that was, in part, was even the things that I took for a break. I, I went off for General Assembly to sit through meetings and make decisions and all those things. It wasn't a break. I was preaching that Sunday. I took a trip in January, but it was a trip to teach people the Word of God and to help train pastors. And I realized I hadn't had a true break a week where I was not preaching or teaching since last Thanksgiving. Now I know that a week will not bring total relief or solve every issue. And I have to tell you, there's just a lot of things going in and on in my mind. I told you, you know, my wife, she hears me sighing from time to time. And sometimes I don't even know why I'm sighing. But the thing is this, I know God is there, and I know he listens. And I have experienced that he listens, so I can look back at other times in my life where things may have seemed overwhelming, either overwhelming sadness or overwhelming uh, lack of confidence or overwhelming sense of, of woe or whatever it may be, and I know that God listened then. And I know that God preserved and protected me then. And I know that he will hear my prayer. And David in his life and all his ups and his downs and all of the things that he did wrong and all the things he did right, all of the times when he was running from enemies and all the times when he feared for his life, he knew that God was listening. He also knows that God hates the wicked. For David, this was very real to him because he knew that some of his enemies were just plain wicked individuals seeking to damage the Lord's anointed, David himself, or the kingdom for their own purposes. And here's what he says, hard words for us in 21st century America to hear. He says, for you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. In other words, God has no part with evil. He neither delights in it takes pleasure in it, unlike those who might say there's a yin and yang and they all come together and form something or other, you know, what, what crazy nonsense. There's neither delight in evil nor abidance in evil. It's interesting the words that are used here, evil may not dwell with you. The word for dwell is the word to stay as a sojourner or a foreigner and stay as, as that kind of uh, situation. In other words, evil comes in like a foreigner and sojourns there. No, God doesn't do that. He cannot even have anything to do with evil. But the thing we don't like to hear is the next part. God also has no part with evildoers. Now this doesn't mean that he won't forgive those who come in faith to him. He hasn't at times sent his spirit to convert someone to faith in Jesus Christ and remove their sin and all those things. But these are individuals who are unrepentant. We know this because he says here, you hate all evildoers in verse 5. That phrase means all those practicing evil. In other words, unrepentant, their life is defined by their wickedness. First of all, he says, the deluded will not stand before your eyes. In other words, 
Sinners, as Spurgeon says on this particular text, sinners are fools written large. The idea here is that sinners will fall before God. And they fall because of their own sin. Then again, this phrase, you hate all those practicing or committing evil. Those whose lives are wrapped up around their wickedness and their sin, they're in bondage to it, they have not repented from it, they have no desire to turn from it, whatever it might be. They do not admit their own sin and come before God in confidence that he will forgive them. These are individuals who are sinners, who are unrepentant. And he says, you hate them. Then he says, you will destroy liars. You destroy those who speak lies. It's kind of interesting that he would start with liars. Don't know exactly why. Although scripture reminds us that it's never acceptable to lie. The commandment tells us, you shall not bear false testimony against your neighbor. Those who are liars can take all kinds of things and turn them around and cause all kinds of problems. The book of James says the tongue is so destructive and evil that it's like a ship uh, and the, it's the rudder of the ship and it can turn things astray. It's also something that can set things on fire. He says you will destroy liars. You will loathe the man of blood, it says, or the abhor the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. In other words, it's kind of equating the liar with the violent individual and those who would commit fraud. Now, you wonder in the same psalm you have in the first three verses, God hears his people. On the second hand, he says God hates the wicked. Tremper Longman says on this passage, the reality of life on earth frustrates the full joy of the godly. You see, when he recognized God hears his people, he can also recognize in himself those things he was, a liar and a violent man. And God had to change him from that to become a righteous person based on his faith and his the sacrifices offered on his behalf looking forward to the final sacrifice of Jesus Christ. But this is a reminder here, there is a hell. The unrepentant sinner God hates and will feel the full force of his wrath. This is why it's so important that we explain the gospel to the world who needs salvation from the wrath of God. Think about the difference here between the righteous and the wicked. For the righteous God hears us. We call him my God and my king. And he will hear even the deepest groanings that we cannot articulate before him and answer us. For the wicked, there is loneliness and despair and wrath, and destruction. But then God, it's, it says very clearly here, through the words of the psalmist, he welcomes his people. Now David, you know, he's, he's, he's not the example or the epitome of righteousness on his own merit. He's an adulterer, he's a liar, he's a murderer, he's all those things. He didn't practice the proper mode even for bringing the ark into Jerusalem and someone got killed as a result. In his pride, 
He counted the people basically likely in his pride to just show how powerful the kingdom was. And God caused a great plague to come upon the people. David isn't innocent here, but he is a person whom God has chosen to be his own and has called him to confess his sin, which he did in Psalm 51 or other places. And he comes and he recognizes that his only hope, his only solace is in the Lord. And he says in verse 7, I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. How is David, the sinner, able to come into the house of God? It's because of that Hebrew word I love to tell people. This, if you know one Hebrew word in all the Hebrew language, it's the word hesed. You've heard me say it many, many times. It's this first occurrence here in the Psalms of the word steadfast love, mercy, whatever your translation is here. It's, it's the word for covenant faithfulness. He could come into the presence of God because God was faithful to him. Not because he was faithful, because there were times he was not. Not because he was earning his uh, presence or his relationship with God, but because God was faithful to him. He was able to come to the house of God because of the faithfulness of God to him. I don't know how many times I've talked to people who've said, I can't come to church, I've got to clean up first. I just, when I come through the doors, I just don't feel worthy of coming among these other people. And they don't recognize when they say those things that every last person in here is no better than them. You've heard all the memes, so to speak. You know, what is the one requirement to be a member of the church is to be a sinner. Well, what is it that makes ministry so difficult? What's well, all the people? It's me and you. And you see, we can come into God's presence not because we have it all together and because we're all perfect and we, we have great faith. We can come into God's presence amongst God's people in his house because we're vulnerable, lowly, and in need, and God has supplied for that need. Then we are able to worship, it says, in your holy temple in fear. Now you say, when we understand we're able to come in the temple of God with all of the things we've just talked about, the confidence that God hears us, and, and the understanding that in our vulnerability we're able to come into his presence because God is faithful, we should come with joy, and that's true. But also we're reminded in scripture the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. When we come to worship, we come in reverence. We come in reverence because God is the God. On the one hand, yes, he can rescue his people. In fact, the scriptures tell us that because there is forgiveness with God, he is to be feared. On the other hand, we recognize because of the wrath of God for those who don't trust in him, he is to be feared. He's to be feared more than anything else, more than those who can take my money, more than those who can take my reputation, more than those who can take anything that I have. God can take not only my life, but he can throw me into hell. So we come in a holy fear, recognizing that our presence before God is not a right, it is a privilege. And then David says, lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before me. He's, he's saying, Lord, sometimes it's hard. 
Sometimes it's hard because I need you to lead me in the right path. I'm so prone to wander, as the psalmist says, or the hymnist says. He says, uh, I'm able to follow you only by your leading. Only by you, Lord. The other thing he says is there's all kinds of obstacles in my way, all kinds of barriers to walking down the right path. And so he asks the Lord, make your way straight, level it. We were walking down the path by the coastal waterway down there by the new housing development. And, of course, I always think down there it's amazing that not a single house was down there when we moved here. And so we walked down there behind the YMCA, and we walked down that way, and we, we, we were walking, and, and along the path there's all this goose dirt. And, you know, if you weren't watching, you'd step in it. But also, as you go down the path, it had rained. So down the path, there was some mud down there. And it could be a barrier for you to going down the path. It wasn't very bad. We could have gone past it. That happens to be where we did our turnaround. But think of all the ways, all the barriers to a path. In fact, we had a visitor in the office the other day, our Xerox copy salesman. A couple years ago, he was on a bike, and he was going super fast, about 20 miles an hour, and he went down this bike path or walking path or whatever it was, and there was a branch, a tree trunk across the path, and he hit it at 20 miles an hour, landed on his head, broke his helmet in three places, and broke his neck. You would even not, not even know he broke his neck. He's been healed completely. But there are so many barriers in our spiritual path. They're like those tree trunks laying across the path and we're going headlong down our path of pride and self-righteousness and and the ability that we think we have all together to make it. And we're asking God, please take those away. That we might live a life of righteousness. You see, it says, lead me in your righteousness. We don't have any. It's the righteousness of Christ given to us by faith. Lead us in that righteousness so that we might have the same mind of Christ, that we might have the same self-sacrificing love that Jesus has, that we might be those walking down that path who invite others to come along the path with us. God welcomes his people, the author writes. And David loves that. Remember, David is a guy at times who is is hiding in fear of his life. And he's reminding everybody, I can't wait. I can't wait to be with God in the temple. And then he goes back. He's alternating again between the people of God and the wicked. And he reminds us of the state of the wicked in verses 9 and 10. There's no truth in their mouth. Their innermost Self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. The description of the wicked here is, first of all, that they're unstable. When it says there is no truth in their mouth, it's not the normal word for truth. It's a word that says, basically, they're, they're unstable. They, they, they don't have any stability or reliability. That's kind of what's behind the idea of truth. It's reliable at all times and faithful. And here he says, the, the wicked are not like that. They're, they're unstable. And isn't that true? You never know what somebody's going to do if they're completely caught up in their sin. In fact, they'll do things that are completely against logic. There was an article that I looked at briefly. It was about ten big lottery winners. All of them fell into great terrible circumstances. It doesn't mean that every lottery winner does this, but, but they were anything from 
murdered to murderers to those who were bankrupt. One of them was even found with his wife living in squalor after he won the lottery just a few years later, living in squalor in a rental place, not, not, a, not like a, a, an apartment, but a storage facility in the feces of their pets. You're unstable. You're also flatterers. <laughs> kind of interesting what he says here. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. In other words, their, their speech leads to destruction, even death. And here it reminds us the wicked careening down in their instability will say things and do things that are so destructive their throats are like an open grave. On the outside, they might say how wonderful you are or how wonderful God is, but on the inside, it's all for manipulative power. And what will happen? Make them bear their guilt, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels. Because of the abundance of their transgressions, cast them out, for they have rebelled against you. Again, what is the main concern of David? The main concern of David is not, go get him, God. It's that your glory and honor have been tarnished by their sin. Yesterday, we were traveling on the way to walk on that walking path. We were traveling and we were turning down. If you know the area, we, we were coming from Carolina Forest and we were turning left on Grissom off of Grissom Parkway onto 17, there's that dangerous left-hand turn there. Perhaps you know what it's like. I do it every day. And sometimes that left-hand turn gets backed up, and when it gets backed up to the bridge, you're actually in the left-hand lane of the road. And you always wonder, at least I always wonder, is somebody going to hit me from behind? So it was backed up a little bit about 6.30 in the evening. It was backed up enough to get on the bridge, so we were in the other lane, and all of a sudden I realized this white working van was careening down the road probably about 65 miles an hour behind us. They swerved, and they went over not only to the side of the road, but their car tipped a little bit as if they were going to flip over, and they, you heard the squealing, and they were somehow able to correct themselves in the midst of other cars in the other lane. This is the life of the ungodly. Careening down, out of control, unable perhaps to, to understand your way or to see what's coming, but to know at some point, the righteous know, that if we don't submit to the Lord, that careening life of instability will lead to destruction. Falling in our own sin. Praise be to God. He has called some to himself. David says, let all who take refuge in you rejoice. And it's interesting, he says all. He doesn't say, let all the people who are good enough to have your blessing. He says, let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy. Joy for those who seek refuge in you. 
in the midst of a life that can be dreary, can seem as if it, it, it results in nothing but despair, at times may have blessings and good times, but in the end you recognize everybody gets old, everybody experiences difficulty in their health, everybody has difficulty in relationships. It can seem overwhelming that everything coming upon us, in the end no one is happy, but in the Lord there is joy. Not necessarily happy, happy joy all the time in this life, but the deep down joy to know that God has rescued you from that careening life of instability. And he gives you protection. Spread your protection over them, and those who love your name may exalt in you. For you bless the righteous, O Lord. You cover him with favor as with a shield. Doesn't always feel that good. But when God is committed to somebody, his covenant faithfulness will stand. It doesn't mean that he's going to say you don't have cancer. Not necessarily. It doesn't mean that he won't say, okay, you won't be persecuted anymore. That's not necessarily the case. It doesn't mean that he's going to say, okay, you're going to be wealthy and not have to worry about money anymore or not worry about interpersonal relationships. He will bless us and cover us with his favor. That means we will not experience his wrath. The greatest danger to our lives is not all those things out there that make us so down and depressed and dark and all those things. The thing that is the most danger to us is the wrath of God on sinners. And David recognizes, even though at times he doesn't know the outcome when he's experiencing these things, when Absalom tried to take over the kingdom, David said to the guy, Shimei, that was cursing him, those around him said, hey, let's get him. And he said, no, God may have told them to curse me. He didn't know the outcome, but he knew the Lord would not abandon him. He would not abandon him to Sheol. God blesses his people with favor as a shield, he protects those he will bless. The godly, only the godly with the righteousness of Christ have the stability and protection of the sovereign but faithful God of the universe. God is faithful to us even if we haven't been faithful to him but yet come to him in humility and faith. You see, if you are a believer, even if your gas tank is empty, even if you're going through the difficulties of waiting for a doctor's report, even if you're experiencing the instability of your decisions, you can be confident that God is committed to give you both his presence, that is himself, and his protection, ultimately from the wrath of God. I hope you, with me, will say like David, by your steadfast love, by the abundance of your steadfast love, I will enter your house. Let's pray. Lord, in the midst of a world in which we know that life is not a bed of roses because of the sin in the world, yet to know, the Lord, that you will hear your people. You will call them, you will rescue them, and you will preserve them. Father, we pray that our confidence may be in you, not ourselves, not our ideas, not our neighbors, not our country, not whatever it is that we turn to for solace. Let us turn to you. For you, Lord, 
covenantally faithful. And by your grace, you will make our path straight. We pray these